Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Very, very much looking forward to being in Orlando next month. Yeah. I think or is it show, this month? Yeah. I think this show comes out while we're in Orlando. So yes, there you it go. does. Oh, this is coming out on Kelly's birthday. Oh, my goodness. Okay. That's Hold amazing. Happy birthday. Yeah. You know what I'm doing right now? What's that? Probably drinking in a bar. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's very likely. Yes. Very That's likely. Very, very, pretty probable thing. Pretty exciting to be in person. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait. And of course, you know, we're recording this in May. Mm-hmm. I just got my COVID shot, the second one. And, um, yeah. Things are good. Things are good. What can I say? We'll report back after we have something to report about from yes. Dev Intersection. But uh, for now, let's get things started with Better Know a Framework. Awesome. <laughs> Well, last week on Paula's show, um, my better known framework was Coyote, which right. uh, keeps you from shooting yourself in the foot when you're doing kind of asynchronous programming. Well, it's easier now, you know, because you've got async and await, which just completely revolutionized the the uh, availability of asynchronous programming when it came out in C Sharp. But, um, you know, sometimes you need to lock stuff and there's still the lock right. keyword in C sharp. And, you know, sometimes it works for things and not other things. And sometimes you get the dreaded, we can't lock this in this t- particular type of, you know, if you're making a call, like an API call or something, no, we can't lock that. Right. Some, some, some situations you need to go one step further, like maybe a semaphore. Mm-hmm. Well, the full semaphore class. Um, uses Windows kernel semaphores. And so they can be not only local app to your application, but system wide. Mm-hmm. So there's a version of the semaphore called semaphore slim nice. in the, in the .NET framework. And it's been there for, you know, before .NET core, but I hadn't used it before. So it's a lightweight alternative to semaphore that is local only. And uh, it's also got a wait async on it. So, essentially what happens is you initialize it with the current, uh, the initial number of threads you're going to allow and optionally the maximum number of threads that you can allow. So, if you just basically initialize it with one comma one, you're allowing one thread and that's it. And so, what you do is you just create that and then when you want to implement it, you do uh, your semaphore slim object dot wait or wait async, you know, with the await. And then all the code that goes under that is locked basically until you do a semaphore slim object dot release. So it's really easy. It's really easy to use and it works in more places than just the lock, which requires a separate object to lock. Right. And I found it really useful when, doing the, um, remember I told you about making an API backend that writes to a, ma- a data manager that writes to Azure blobs, like JSON right. files in a blob storage fast. container, very fast. You know, you, the, the criteria for that, if you're going to do it, not a lot of data because you got to write the whole thing, got to write the yeah. whole JSON file. So, it makes sense to split it up, you know, as you have different tables like 
that kind of thing. But you have to write the whole thing every time you want to save. And you also have to allow for, you know, multiple people to use it. So this turned out to be a really good thing to use on the server side when we're saving data or accessing data. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Semaphore Slim. Know it, learn it, nice. love it. Uh, and it's, I'm just surprised that I had never seen it before. And no, I went I'm just looking. surprised that you did a better know a framework about a part of the framework. That's about weird. part of the framework, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very cool and it works like a charm. So no, nice. learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grab the comment off the show 1554, talking about anti fragility uh, in software architecture with Barry O'Reilly. Mm. And, uh, you know, roughly approximate to some of the stuff we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of great comments on the show, but there was a derivative comment. It was just about a, a talking point in that show where yeah. we were talking about the undersea data center that Microsoft oh, has yeah. built. Yeah, yeah. Which at that time was still underwater. Today is on the surface, and I've been trying to get a show with the team to talk about, like, what did you find after being underwater for three years? Like, what's happened? Yeah. The only piece of data that come out so far is that the failure rate of the equipment was substantially lower. On the surface or, or in the sub- uh, well, in the water? While, while it was sub- submerged, it was actually a running data center. It's small. It's just a little cylinder, relatively speaking. It's got server racks in it. But because the environment is so fixed, right? I mean, the whole point with this undersea data center is the cooling's cooling. implicit. The water's doing the cooling. Uh, you get to put it close to cities where your low latency really matters in land that's effectively free. It's at the bottom of the sea near the city or wherever you might do it. So, you know, that's there's reasons why they're developing this. It's a good idea. Yeah. It's interesting. And this was the the, the biggest test, the one out in the Orkney Islands. Uh, and yeah, they, the reliability was really, really high. And their argument was because people don't mess with it. When it's underwater, you can't get to it. It's just sort of, if you leave stuff alone, it's more reliable. But uh, Mark Hodgkin's comment, this is a few from a few years ago, says, that underwater data center in Orkney must be close to Scapa Flow. And yes, yes, it is. Must be close uh, to what? Which is the location of the remains of the German high seas fleet. So that was World War II, World War I's uh, Battle of Jutland, where a lot of German ships were lost. They're, they're down there. Uh, that data center might make some interesting additional scuba diving and I've heard that low background steel is salvaged from pre-nuclear testing ships, including these World War I battleships. Uh, and, in, and then he said, citation needed. And I'm like, yeah, there is some citations around that because they really do do that. Hmm. That, you know, since nuclear testing has happened, you have uh, a, a sort of background level of radioactivity to most ores. And so if you are in an environment like spacecraft, he referenced Voyager 1, where you want to be sure that the radiation you're measuring is in the environment you're in, not in the materials you're using. You actually have to go hunt down steel that was protected from that testing. And steel on the bottom of the ocean is one of the ways to do it. So why did they bring it to the surface? They Why did they bring the uh, the undersea data center to the surface? Yeah. They were finished their testing and they wanted to evaluate the, the state of it. These are all experiments. Uh, oh. It's not I've, a commercial product yet. Oh, okay. All right. That makes sense. It will be someday. And it's getting, I, I wonder if they're there now. Like this was such a good field test that I suspect, uh, they're, they're, they're going to, they're going to put out a bunch of them. I mean, you realize with cloud servers, essentially, they turn them over every three, four or five years anyway. Yeah. So the whole point is put the cylinder down, wire it up and so forth, run it for four or five years, take it up and have it refurbished. Rather than building in a bespoke buildings and things, like just dropping, having these cylinders just come and go from the, the local waterways around you is a pretty good way to solve the problem. If they did it's them up here, they'd solution. have lobster pots around them. 
I, yeah, goodness knows what it all be snagged on. And, and of course, the ocean is unstoppable. There's lots of there was lots of gunk on the the data center by the time it came to the surface. Right. So, Mark, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music Code by, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on the Facebooks as we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, I'll send you a copy of Music Code. And, uh, and definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. There's a semaphore slim chance we might even respond. Okay. Nice. And with isn't that, that. Isn't that a kind of like pepperoni stick, semaphore slim? It's him before Slim Jim. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Close. Close enough. Okay. Yeah, there's nothing slim about my semaphore. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. Okay. Well, anyway. That's where we ended up. I, I guess so. You know, it's Monday morning, Monday afternoon. Uh, let's bring back to the show Jeremy Miller. He is the Senior Director of Architecture for Media Analytics. That's M-E-D-E, Analytics. Jeremy began his software career writing shadow IT applications to automate his tedious engineering documentation, then wandered into software development because it looked like more fun. Jeremy has been heavily involved in opensource.net development as the author of Structure Map, Storyteller, and as the lead developer of Martin, M-A-R-T-E-N. Jeremy occasionally manages to write about various software topics at jeremydmiller.com. Welcome back, Jeremy. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, you bet, man. Good to talk to you. Yeah. How is Martin doing? We are very close to a gigantic V4 release. Um, nice. Kind of gone over, turned over almost everything, um, made a, a ton of improvements, but we're closing in on Duke Nukem Forever territory. So <laughs> we're going to record this. So I have a hard deadline to get V4 out. There you goes. go. Right. You're going to kick ass and chew bubble gum and you're all out of gum. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's what you look for in a version rep, like from, you know, from going to version four is – you rethink the problem space from all the experience you've had and, and literally come up with a new strategy that writes a new version of the product. Well, so so the good and, and the bad of actually having a significant amount of users is they find problems. They find problems or yeah. um, even more than that, you learn a lot about how how the system wants to be used. What are your real use cases? Right. What are the problems? And then a lot of it is just trying to stretch Martin so we can go into bigger and bigger systems to, to scale up as much as possible so that mm-hmm. more folks can use it. It does speak to like fundamental architecture changes you end up doing. And, it, and you, you know, that's, that's not a dot one change. That's yeah. a, okay, we need to rethink this. Oh, and that's absolutely true. And then also with us trying to play with semantic versioning rules, when you're doing a full point mm-hmm. release, it's okay. This is our chance to correct usability problems with the API. This is, you know, this is right. your one chance to sneak in break, potentially breaking changes. Well, and because people are expecting it. Hey, if I'm moving from three to four, things could break. Like, and you can mark that out. It's like, if you, if you do things this way in Martin, you, you're going to have some issues in the new version. Sure. Sure. And we still try to minimize it, but <laughs> sure. there are some problems that need to be addressed. Yeah, the word is minimize. Mm. (laughs) I'm not out there trying to torment people. I'm just making the product better. And sometimes that runs into edge cases that are problematic. Well, and that's one of the cruel cruel facts of software development is uh, Mm -hmm. backwards compatibility 
impedes process or progress. Uh, it, it is hard to maintain perfect backwards compatibility and continue to improve your tooling. Um, some, something's got to get in exchange for keeping customers, right? I mean, that's the trade, right? That as soon as you do a set of breaking changes where people have to rethink anyway, they can rethink away from your product entirely. Very true. Very true. So uh, we want to talk about event sourcing today. And uh, I remember my first event sourcing project. <laughs> it was, funnily enough, the um, accounting section of a bigger project where the, you know, the requirement was there can never be a single source of truth. There has to be only modifications to the numbers. We can't just look at one value in one table and say, oh, that's the number. Well, because we don't know how we got there. And so it, I remember specifically that moment when I was like, oh, yeah, that does make sense. It makes it a little harder for the developer, but not really. I, so I don't know if I would say harder, but it's very different than the traditional architecture. Different. You know, the, the traditional yeah. idea or, or what I grew up with is you more or less designed the database first. Uh, and, and it was yep. it was a relational database. It was pretty well always going to be a relational database. And that was your single source of, of truth. And you may not realize how many times you are mapping data, incoming data to your database how many times you're mapping your domain model, how many times you're mapping away from your database to whatever it is your UI needs. Um, one way maybe to soften up, up event sourcing because it is so different is you're doing about the same kind of the same amount of work. It's just you're doing things at a different time. Yeah. Hmm. Well, just so naturally asynchronous. So not necessarily. So um, taking, taking Martin Traditionally, yes. So traditionally, for maybe for your listeners that aren't haven't done a lot of this, you're capturing all changes in state explicitly as some kind of event. Um, you know, if we're talking about an ordering system, it's order received. Um, I worked on a mm -hmm. um, um, <clears throat> pre previous company. We worked on a call center application, kind of a call center telehealth application. So we had things like call started, call ended, call dropped because things went wrong. So you right. purposely modeled any kind, anything that was really a change in state. You modeled it as, right. as an explicit event, and you really end up just um, serializing JSON and stuffing it in the database. Right. Traditionally, with event sourcing, um, that's nice. You have all these events, but you still need the current state of the system at some point. So right. you probably have some kind of asynchronous process in the background that is taking all these events and building up what the current state is. So you can look at it at any time. The events are, are the true source of truth, but you have a kind of a reflected, right. a projected view. Are you a fan of not put, are you not a fan of putting the current state in an event? In other words, uh, you have all your events, but let, let's say it's a, an accounting system to take my experience an accounting system, you know, where you have the the total, right? Is that total going to be recalculated every time you go to query it? Or is the total also going to be saved somewhere like in the last event? Um, gotcha. So, it depends. Um, you love that one. Now, so in an accounting system, so if you're using Martin, no, you, you <clears throat> I know some people will do like a snapshot, an event snapshot uh, to yeah. reset 
reset, uh, well, reset the state. That that's getting into pretty advanced usages, I think. Traditionally, you're probably just change. You're probably just recording the changes in state. But what you can do in Martin, we've got a little bit of flexibility in what you can do. So these this projected view of what is the current state of the account, uh, you can either do what we call an inline projection. So in the same transaction where you're you're capturing the event, we can go ahead and update the projected view of that account right there in the same transaction. So you're you're asset. You have a strong consistency model. Um, you may instead say, say if you got a case where, um, and I'm, I'm working on a system similar to this today, where you have um, very few, or you have a lot of reads and very few writes. So mm-hmm. in that case, it made a lot of sense to do things in line. Just immediately update the read side side model as you can, so it's just completely built up. Um, right. In other places, you may have lots of writes, but very few reads. So in that case, you probably don't want the extra overhead of constantly updating things. So right. Martin has the idea of a live aggregation where you could say, I think what you're describing, I want to see the current state of the account, and it'll just compile right. it from the raw events on the fly. Or, you know, show me what it was at five o'clock yesterday. And then the right. third model that's probably more more traditional event sourcing is the asynchronous model. This is your eventual consistency. Now you have some kind of background process that's yeah. constantly trying to grab the latest events and update your projected views. So you've got just a little bit of lag between capturing the updates to an account and the compiled account being visible in the database. Yeah, I think the whole world was taught eventual consistency by Facebook. <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd put up your Facebook post and it wouldn't appear right away. So you're like, oh, I messed it up. Post probably so you'd post it again. And then eventual consistency would show you too. You know, it's a, you learn. Put uh, up your you post. Know, Wait a minute. <laughs> I have a sneaking suspicion we haven't talked too much about eventual consistency on .NET Rocks. Maybe we ought to tell everybody what we're talking about. What we're talking about is kind of, it is kind of self-explanatory, but, but really what it means is that at some point in the future, asynchronously, we will have a, 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 a source of truth or a state of, of, you know, the consistency or the, the, the truth, the data as it was at a particular time. Like it, it isn't immediate. It isn't something you can synchronously query. Yeah, as we were talking about in the context of Facebook, like Facebook showed that to everybody right. because there was a lag between you putting up a post and seeing it in your feed. Yeah. And, yeah. and automatically humans do the wrong thing, right? They yeah. automatically go, like, Oh, I just posted this. Why don't I see Why it? Why don't I see it? Post, post it, it again. again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty quickly. I think Facebook figured out, Hey, if they post it again, don't post it again. Right. <laughs> so maybe to follow up on that. So, so the good and the bads for, for developers trying to wrestle with using eventual consistency, potentially it, it's a, it's a huge advantage for scalability. Mm-hmm. By and responsiveness to your system by taking a lot of the potentially expensive updates of, of this, you know, more expensive read side model, like say all these account changes to an account coming in, if you can capture the raw events pretty fast, um, so that you are uh, very responsive to external API users, but then have a background process off to the side. That's not in line with your API calls. It's just trying to catch up right. and make the make the full updates. So it's great. It's potentially great for scalability. The obvious downside you talked about Facebook people submitting things twice. Um, 
Yeah. I just got done helping um, helping a project that suffers from eventual consistency. In this case, they're using Elasticsearch for fuzzy searching. And right. But there's a process in their UI where they make an update to a website, and that takes them to a new tab. And they try to query on against Elasticsearch on the data that just barely got updated. So it doesn't look like it's coming through. And then they question, did I really type it out? Did I forget to do this? So that they're just, yeah. when you hit that, I mean, that's something developers got to know when you can and cannot get away with eventual consistency. Uh, you know, you, or you just build it in your tech support practice where you answer the phone going, <laughs> tech support, do you press refresh? And don't answer on the first ring, like answer on the third ring. Because by that time, it'll have actually been populated now. It's like, okay, you're good, thanks. Well, just make sure you don't have some kind of DevOps culture where the developers are actually responsible for production support before you do that. But then you just know the phone won't get answered right away, which <laughs> solves the problem. Because as long as they wait for long enough, it'll re- it, the data will appear, right? I mean, it is very interesting to consider that particular issue in exchange for all of those strengths. That it, with the big thing I realized, thinking of this from a database perspective, is no updates, only inserts. Right? All of those locks that would normally occur because you're wrestling over a particular location of a database. That doesn't exist in these models. They're journaling. They just add new row. They are, uh, which which when we get into it maybe a little bit later, we'll talk about how we're going to make that mm-hmm. scalable. Um, it is. And where you are maybe updating, updating, you know, the count information, if you're doing that off to the side in an asynchronous, in an asynchronous uh, process, you can do that. Mm-hmm. That asynchronous process won't have anywhere near the same kind of contention that your normal intake will. Right. Well, it more, and you're not making the customer wait, right? I mean, you're set, essentially sending the customer on its way, having collected the data, and all of that synchronization is happening while the customer has already moved on. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And I, th- I think that's just an interesting philosophy all around, this idea that we force the user to wait while we get to a consistent state before we say, okay, like, you got the data, good enough, see ya. Let them go on, and now you do your thing on the back end. Just get the journal entry in. The simplest thing in the world: save the blob, you know, write, do the insert. That's the only thing you keep them around for, and the rest is up to you asynchronously. Asynchronously meaning milliseconds later, mm-hmm. typically. Yes, but then there's also just a little bit of challenge just as a developer to make sure it is going to be consistent that you record those events, but now you really do have to have something else that is guaranteed to process those. Or, you know, if you've got right. a leaky pipe, you, you just, you're just losing data. And I guess therein lies the question, which is in these patterns, what is the risk of lost data versus unprocessed data? Like it's there, but it's not in the consistent state. Well, uh, so ask me in a year after Martin V4 <laughs> with uh, our new asynchronous support's been in place. Uh, no, it, it's yeah. a it's a significant amount of challenge on the uh, the error handling for that that kind of asynchronous process. You know, if, if a user's pushing a button and it blows up, I mean, they can just sit there and retry mm-hmm. it, or they can tell you something's wrong. But if it's something goes wrong in an asynchronous process off to the side, um, you know, how are you going to watch that? You know, do you have yeah. do you have really solid retry capabilities? You know, can you discern what type of exception is? Is this a you know a network connectivity problem? So I can just retry again in just a second, or um, is this some kind of you know just br- drawing on my recent client work? 
is this some catastrophic event because the downstream system is just totally offline? You know, in which case yeah. I need to slam a circuit breaker shut. I need to stop all processing and just let things build up in the queue so nothing gets lost. Yeah, that's always the thing is it's a resiliency mindset. It's one of the reasons I mentioned that anti-fragile show that we're not presuming everything works all the time, but that when things break, they break gracefully, like they're recoverable. Data is not lost. And, it's in, and you only pull the anon cable like the full stop if there's a risk of losing data. Yeah. And for, for folks listening to the show, I'm nodding pretty vigorously to, to Richard here. <laughs> Yes, there was violent agreement. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's an, in, you know, you talk about this, the philosophical difference. And it, it is this part of the resiliency part of that. Tolerate your software having a bad day. Connectivity being erratic. Drives going down. Uh, you know, that stuff happens. And does your software fail catastrophically or gracefully that it can restore back and consistency they can keep going? Mm. Oh, and absolutely. So, you know, just make sure I'm tooting our own horn. Um, we have built a lot of that resiliency or we're attempting to into our asynchronous processing Martin. Um, and, and it does also have, you know, configurable error handling. So you can teach it about what exceptions mean. So if it's specific exceptions to your application, you can do things like say, no, I need you to stop the line, or this is going to be what we call a poison pill event. There's something that's so yeah. messed up about this that it can never be processed. So skip it and go yeah. on or do a circuit breaker. Just totally stop the line. Right. You know, in event language, we, we have a bad letters file, right? Like that there's a, there is a, uh, a message that has reached the queue. The DLQ that is bad. Yeah. And so you, you, you don't throw it out, but you don't let it chew up cycles unnecessarily. It's like, I don't know what to do about this. I'm going to put it in the bad letter queue. You deal with it later. And then you continue on. Yes. Yeah. And sep have a separate process that chews through the DLQ or the bad letter queue, whatever you call it. And, you know, looks to resolve those things. Some of the, some of the challenges I, I hit in the last several years in, in client work is, um, Dealing with resiliency in a way where you can keep things from landing in the dead letter queue too soon, right. you know, because um, sooner or later, some kind of if a support person has your phone number or email address, sooner or later, <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're going to make your life miserable and drag you into that. Mm. <laughs> True enough. The, uh, you know, the dead letter queue is a workaround. Like you don't want stuff that normally ends up there, but it's better than chewing everything else up. And it typically, the, now you can have another synchronous asynchronous process that's going through the dead letter queue and going, is this worth retrying? Right. You know, is there a recovery mechanism? Like you could put automation around or it. some but intelligence too. You know, this looks yeah. like it's a bad email address or whatever. Maybe we could bring it up to the user and say, uh, you know, is this accurate information? Uh, that or possibly just a little bit of tooling to make sure your support folks, your DevOps, whoever, that they have a really fast way to retry this, throw it away, but at, at least have some instrumentation and alerting to they so they know when these things are landing in and dead letter queues. Yeah. So uh, here's an interesting real world world problem that even dead letter queues probably can't solve, which is that um, my mother, you know, I talk about Grandma Franklin every once in a while and her computer woes. 
she needed a new washing machine or something. So she called someplace because she thinks that, you know, going online to do stuff is, you know, she wants to talk to somebody. So she gave them her email address and instead of an F, they sent it to an, you know, an email address with S because obviously those two are very familiar sounding. So me being the domain, uh, you know, admin, I get all the emails from this people to the wrong email address and I'm forwarding them to her. But if I wasn't doing that, they would have just gone into the void and, yeah. you know, th- she would have completely missed these things that she had to do. So sometimes it might just be that, Hey, you know, we haven't had a response from this person, which has nothing to do with what's in the dead letter queue, except that we sent this email, for example, and didn't never got a response back. And it's now it's come time for the appointment and there's no response. What do you do about that? That requires some sort of human interaction. Well, and this is a usability thing, but for any kind of asynchronous communication where you're setting up appointments for real people, you have, this is something I also stumbled on on a recent project. You have to close the loop. There always has to be some kind of, acknowledgement back to them of we received your message. You you don't leave them hanging, uh, wondering what, what goes, what's going to happen next. Yeah. Right. Although, I mean, email because of spammers, you know, bouncing back with a, that's not a valid email address also has negative consequences. It's a way to identify email addresses. They end up blocking you. So there's, there's been sort of a black hole policy for a lot of that stuff too. Yeah. Except, you know, we're fighting two different issues here. So I don't yeah. think, you know, our regular messages and data structures aren't necessarily in the same boat as email. Uh, and gentlemen, I need to interrupt for one very important message. Hey, Carl here. You know, there's something new from our friends at Text Control. TX Text Control supports the integration of legally binding electronic document signatures into your ASP.NET Core web applications. Simply use Microsoft Word documents, prepare them using the Text Control online editor, and request signatures from signers. It works just like well-known e-sign services, but runs on-premises in your infrastructure without sending and storing documents somewhere else. To showcase typical workflows and the Text Control electronic signature technology, they published a fully functional demo that can be used to create and request signatures, sign documents, and to validate executed PDF files. See the demo at esign.textcontrol.com. That's esign.textcontrol.com. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit raygun.com to resolve issues faster and to deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's raygun.com, 
to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. And we're back. It's on rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Yo. Hey, we're talking to Jeremy Miller, a bit about event sourcing. And I think we've got to sort of address the fundamentals. What's the hard bit here? Well, it's thinking about things differently. Um, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, we talked about eventual consistency. Um, I would say it, it's exactly that. Unless you have great tooling, like like I hope people will consider Martin to be, it's how do we manage that asynchronous process if we have to have that that can ingest all these quickly incoming events and make sure that they are getting built into the read side. Um, And then, you know, doing it reliably, but also making sure it's fast enough that it can keep up with the the traffic. Um, So why not just use a message queue for this? Why are you storing events in Martin? Well, so you need a permanent store for the events. So part of event sourcing is, the ability at any time to go back and see why did it why did it become the way it was? Yeah, the the, the chronology of what happened. Sure, right? like that's so what you've got. <clears throat> so Martin's asynchronous process, asynchronous projections for right now um, happens to do it by polling against the the Postgres database. Someday, so but some of the other techniques for doing this are just like you said to immediately kick it out into queues. And have used that to feed whatever your projection engine is. So now we got a couple, we got a couple new challenges. So we talked about the consistency. You never lose, lose information. Mm-hmm. So on the inside, when data is coming in, say this is a, just say it's kind of a typical CQRS architecture. So somebody issues a command that is sent to your system. And out of that command, maybe you make some updates to some other database tables. You, Maybe you register, record some events, and then you also want to kick the kick those events, publish them out to a queue. And all of those things have to succeed or fail together. It needs to be a logical transaction. Right. right. So the old days, um, <clears throat> we might have tried to use something like, here you go, Richard. Um, I want to see your face when I say this. You might have used something like MTS to do a two-phase commit. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Let the record Ooh, show that he was horrified. Bad memories. Right. Yeah. Yes. Nobody wants to do that. Right. Microsoft transaction coordinator, because sometimes your transactions are not coordinated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For the young folks, it's just an automatic way to create memory leaks in your application. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It was. Have you not had enough pain today? Let me give you a tool for more pain. (laughs) It was early Cro-Magnon Windows NT technology, and we'll leave it at that. If you wonder why all the old guys are so grumpy, this is one of them. The other one is DCOM, but let's not talk about well, that. Well, then MTS used DCOM. Yeah, of course it did. D-com. Because stacking an unstable technology on top of another unstable technology is a path <laughs> to success. <laughs> so CQRS basically separate your uh, system that handles reads from that which handles writes. Yes. Pretty much. Yes. But so now going back to our consistency issue where, where I was driving at. So one of your challenges on the on the incoming side is we, we don't want to do two-phase commits. Um, I don't even know how you'd go about doing that anymore, to be honest, in new technology. No, it's just not a thing anymore, really. No. So you're gonna use a you're gonna use a design pattern called the outbox pattern. Uh, and to oversimplify right. that, 
you're going to you're going to persist the the messages that are you're about to publish. In this case, just the events. You're gonna you're gonna record those and persist those to the same transactional database that you're recording the events or your database anyway. So once one native native database transaction, um, once once that succeeds, then a background process is going to try to kick that out. And to make sure that all these messages that are persisted as outgoing messages in the database are picked up from that database and pushed successfully pushed out to an outgoing queue. So yeah, right. there, unfortunately, you know, in the dot world, there's going to be a lot of tooling that already has, has this, um, hmm. uh, just to plug another, another open source project of mine called Jasper. Um, I, I have an outbox based around Martin and either RabbitMQ or Azure service bus. But if you pick up a tool, if you're doing your asynchronous messaging within service bus or mass transit or one of the well, the, the commonly used messaging frameworks in .NET, they're going to have a strong implementation of the outbox pattern. Um, it's not something you, you necessarily want to run around and try to build yourself if you can pick off off the shelf. So, sure. Yeah, why bother? Yeah. So that's one challenge. On the receiving side of things, you know, through the queue, things inevitably go wrong. You're going to accidentally republish the same event a few times over. So on the re- receiver side, you're going to need to be careful about disregarding duplicate, duplicate events. Right. And then there's a sequencing, a potential sequencing problem of, hey, I got, uh, you know, I, I got event number five in this stream, but I don't know about one through four. So am I going to try to wait and, and do the me- messaging sequencing or how is that going to work? Mm-hmm. So that's and another it- another issue where you probably want to use off the shelf shelf technology wherever possible. If you're using the Azure stuff, you know, for for uh, messaging, message queue and uh, event grid, and there's more of them. Uh, some of those have built-in, you know, insurance of uh, accurate sequencing, and some don't. So you don't have you do have to be sure about what you're what you're using, and make sure that uh, you know, make sure you know what you're using. <laughs> and how it works. Yeah. And then, you know, just like the old GI Joe cartoons, you know, the first, first thing to know is just know that these are potential issues, you know, knowing is half mm-hmm. the battle. Well, I think part of this is, is diagnosing problems is hard. Like you need a different set of tools, a different approach to debugging, being able to peek into queues to see the chronology, to be able to organize information well enough to even say like, what happened? Test. Right. I, I think we forget because we get a lot of tooling for free that we, you know, when you're reworking these patterns, the, the tooling may or may not be there. Correct. Do you, do you, you look at, like, I, I know I, I grabbed the link for Jasper. Like, is there good instrumentation into Jasper so you can see what's going on? So there, there is, uh, but it could be a lot better. So, I mean, that, that's a good segue. Um, and I apologize if you all have already covered this in previous episodes, but so there's a newer standard called open telemetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a new standard for distributed tracing, you know, between services and applications. Um, Jasper doesn't yet support it. And that, that, that's a pretty big weakness. But what I think we probably all want to do is probably take a pretty good investment in this open telemetry idea. And this is giving us, the causation and correlation tracking across 
a distributed application from, you know, an incoming HTTP tra- request, being able to trace how did this spawn messages that went through queues to other services that might have ricocheted to second and third services down line. Um, right. With the awesome part of this, this open telemetry spec being, because it is a spec, um, a lot of our off-the-shelf monitoring tools, the the things like Splunk or Logzio, Logzio, I'm probably butchering that. Uh, they have open telemetry visualization, so you can see kind of a tree view and a cause effect of this incoming message spawned this event that maybe it aired out over here. But you can start in these complicated environments where you have systems that throw messages to other systems you can start to see some tracing and cause effect of how things flowed and your support people can use that as a way to figure out where did things go wrong? Hmm. Yeah. Where, where are those messages? What happened to them? Uh, Open telemetry talks about being for cloud native software. Does that mean it has to be in the cloud or is this more of an architectural statement and you can run it wherever you want? You can run it wherever you want. This is, um, I'm going to get in trouble for oversimplifying but in a lot of ways, it's a logging spec. How do you receive and send correlation information? Right. And, and I respect the idea of cloud native being the cloud has this in architectural sort of demand for immutability in certain locations, immutability in others. Like, the, you know, it's, a, it's an approach to architecture that works well on prem too. Yes. Yes. But anywhere where you have more than one process talking to each other, asynchronously mm-hmm. HP, you're, you're going to eventually have those problems where you're going to have to trace problems um, around around these systems. It's not going to be isolated to yeah. one system. So, yeah, the adopting open telemetry with some kind of good viewer that's going to give it's going to give you a chance to be able to solve problems that that cross service boundaries. Is that something you're looking at for Martin or uh, just more Jasper? Yes. Yes to both. So um, okay. uh, thanks for bringing that up. So there's a version five in the works. I love it. <laughs> well, uh, there's a sample application I need to build, whether it's with Jasper or maybe it's with, uh, so Jimmy Bogart, I know has done a lot of work with open telemetry and in-service bus, um, yeah. mm-hmm. whether it's in-service bus, mass transit or what. Um, so we did add a lot to Martin for part of V4 because a lot of people wanted this. Uh, there's a little bit of configurable metadata now so that when you're either capturing events or even just doing um, updates to Martin's documents, where you can start to capture correlation IDs, causation IDs. So mm-hmm. think of just just updating a Martin document as a result of a, a web service, an ASP.NET Core web service. Um, if they are, you could capture... Um, whatever correlation identifier you, you're using for the request ID, um, you could tell Martin about that when you when you build a Martin session. Just say this is for this request ID or this correlation ID, right. and that's now kind of uh, extensible metadata that's going to be part of the Martin storage itself. Nice. Same nice. with events. So w- with the goal being, you know, and we need to push through a sample app before I can say. I can say with a straight face, but um, so that Martin is, is a full participant in your open telemetry tracing from web services to writing to Martin to messages getting sent out to complete services. So you can see 
what is the impact of you know a given web request? You could say, ah, you could get to the point where we extend Martin's link uh, support just a tiny bit, but you could do it with SQL now. Or you can say, oh, well, this is the impact. These events were captured. These documents were updated when this HTTP request was handled. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there are libraries for open telemetry for Postgres. I just don't know how much Martin's interaction with Postgres would show in that telemetry. Oh, you know, crudely, this is just adding, <clears throat> this is just adding extra columns for correlation ID, causation ID. Right. And then just make sure we have easy ways to, you can pipe that from incoming requests or like a mass transit or in-service bus message to data that was persisted in Martin. So it, it's pretty crude. But it doesn't have, it doesn't take a lot to be, you just need to show up in that chain inside of open telemetry so that it, it can trace from step to step in any given uh, transaction effectively or message being passed. Yes, exactly. Yep. Well, this is cool, man. And are we missing things that we really need to think about on the event sourcing side? Because I think there's a philosophical part of this, just thinking that asynchronous way. It does seem to me that message queues and Martin kind of go hand in hand, that one of the destinations for messages would be into a Martin data store. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and they'll, they'll have to more and more as we go. Um, some other options we haven't built yet, but, but we definitely want to. Um, doing event streaming from uh, Martin to Kafka or Pulsar or Azure mm -hmm. Event Hubs. Uh, that's something we all want to do. It just didn't make the cut for V4. Um, if you're going to be serious about event sourcing, I mean, I maybe think about what kind of applications fit or don't fit. Um, right. I, I wouldn't touch, I wouldn't use event sourcing if you're building a CRUD application. It's just unnecessary. It's for um, high volume web based stuff. I, it, there's that. Um, I, I think I would add to that um, applications with a lot of workflow. Yeah, right. Um, mm -hmm. This has to happen before this can happen before that. Yeah. Yes. Um, applications where you may want some kind of temporal querying or running metrics. Right. Um, one of the applications I got to use uh, event sourcing with, not with Martin, but um, was a uh, telehealth system. So there's a lot of metrics they're probably going to do later about how, how fast did it go from somebody registering for an online doctor's visit to um, being in their visit. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. we don't know what metrics they're. We don't know exactly what metrics they're they're going to want in the future. But because they have this this raw the event stream, they can recreate those metrics on the fly. Right. Or you start doing things like, what did the world look like at five p.m. yesterday? Yeah. Right. Right. Well, just I mean, it's an intrinsic aspect of this journal approach to data that you can you can literally say, give me the totals up to this date. And essentially recreate the state of the database at any particular interval, which is not true of any updating database where you're writing over data. That data is lost by being written on. Or, you know, you have logs. Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, to, um, so I don't have any direct experience with this, but uh, there is an add-on for Postgres called Timescale DB mm -hmm. uh, that will let you look at point in time of the Postgres database. Um, so a little more brute, brute force approach than event sourcing. Mm. Um, but that, that's also a possibility. 
Yeah, but I, I mean, I do appreciate when you use this event source approach, that is an intrinsic ability to take to to ask for point in time. Correct. Now, now there is some challenge if you're going to go try to, if you're saying this sounds fun and I want to go build my own event sourcing tool completely from scratch <laughs> and, and some things that, that, that Martin needs to get a little better at. Now you get into things like, do I need to record occasional snapshots? Do I try to rebuild the entire mm-hmm. state? Or do I say, yeah. you know, once a day, am I going to keep a snap snapshot in, in history? What are you going to do? So there's, right. there's a lot more. So it's very simple to build a simple events event store. You can build it on your own. There's Greg Young wrote a paper about it. You can just follow and copy that like everyone else did. But getting mm-hmm. into these advanced things and trying to make it be really scalable, that, that's a different ballgame. Yeah. Back in the old day when we wrote data down on ledger paper, you took a balance forward, right? There, Every account started with an entry that was, we start here. Now you don't have to look previous to this. Not to get too literal, uh, but it is an interesting point. You know, always composing existence from the beginning of time is resource intensive. It takes a while. So, you know, if we say, okay, this is a known state, the beginning of the year, here are your quote unquote balance forwards. And now you won't, you don't have to look further back than that. Believe the known state. So that, that is a, so that, that exact kind of feature you're talking about just in the last couple of days, uh, because again, mm-hmm. we're getting into Duke Nukem forever territory. Um, <laughs> I, I purposely pushed that to Martin 4.1. <laughs> Nice. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's a, cause shipping's a feature too. Shipping, getting feedback, writing documentation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and getting to a reliable piece of software. And you've got some time before people get themselves in trouble enough. It's like, you know, it'd be really great. Can I get a balance for <laughs> And by then, then you're lucky. Oh, there it is in 4.1. You anticipated my needs. <laughs> yeah. So this is something I, I tell people that w- want to get, want to be an open source author is there are some potential downsides to having a modicum of success. You'll have users oh, yeah. that will need stuff that you haven't thought about before. It's a great way to learn about software development and understand how other people are doing, but it's a never ending race. Well, and the entitlement of them that you haven't already written it. And, you know, I haven't paid you a sense. Why aren't you doing everything I want? Uh, so, uh, you know, let, let me throw <laughs> a stake in the ground that I think, my experience has been so much more positive in the last maybe maybe four or five years than the ten before that. But I have had plenty of those conversations. Exactly what you're you're describing. Yeah, the, I, I'm with you. The culture has evolved. Yes, and, and right now I can't I can't blink. I mean, I think we probably all saw the the um, what the identity server folks went through a couple weeks ago. Um, oh yeah. But I I haven't had to face much of that myself for a while. Uh, what what happened? Just so everybody knows what we're talking about. Richard, you might have more context than than I do. We did this show. You're talking you're talking about Dominic and, and Brock and Identity Server and this sort of reality that in the end their customers came to them and say, We want to pay for a product oh, from yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Right? I I don't care if it's open source or not, but we want a product. Like it, you just you're, you we're dealing with this evolving economy around software. Yeah, open source is useful, but so is the sort of guarantees that financial liability bring to it. 
So mm-hmm. when your product is actually being impaired in its success because customers can't adopt it unless you represent a different business model, like there's an interesting problem. Mm-hmm. And I think Dom and Brock are just trying to do the right thing by everybody. Like I don't envy those guys. You know, you think about uh, folks generally don't know this, but like the number of conversations we had with them before we did that show, right? As they were figuring out how they wanted to talk about it too. But you know, that was sort of the reality they're in. We're at the edge of history here. We're evolving a new way that software needs to exist. Uh, that is appropriate. And, and you, Jeremy, I mean, you've been in this business long enough. You've done a bunch of these different models and you're doing one right now with Martin. Like, it's not simple. And, uh, I, I don't envy, I appreciate those guys' efforts. One of the reasons we did that show is to help have that conversation about wh- what is right for any given piece of software's longevity and support of its customers. It's a hard problem. It's not, and there's no one right answer. We'd all be doing it if there was. It, it is, and let me just just I'll, I'll say that I'm completely supportive of what what uh, the identity server team did or is doing. Um, yeah, and I, I'm with you. Yeah, and to be honest, uh, the Martin the Martin Core team, we we have talked. Um, I think we're going to have to grow a little bit in, in terms of user numbers, but. I mean, at some point, we are probably going to try to find a way to bring in some revenue to keep this going. Um, at some point, yeah. it's going to get too big otherwise. But um, well, and and like Dom and Brock, sooner or later, you're going to encounter a customer who says, "Hey, I need, I want to pay you for this because I want certain guarantees. You know, I I want certain things, and like, and the money is not the issue." Like, how do we do this? And that's exactly what they were up against. But, you know, it was big companies' identity solution. Like, make no mistake. And you could easily get to the same place. You're talking about the crown jewels of the average company. It's data and how it's stored. Sooner or later, someone's going to take a bet on Martin larger than you considered. And, uh, and they're going to have certain needs and you're going to have to consider that like that. Call it that version of success. Like if nobody was using your product, you'd have no problems. Uh, like you said, it, it sounds like a good problem to have someday. Yeah. It's, it doesn't, but it doesn't mean it isn't a problem either. Right. Uh, and I, and I'm grateful to folks like Dom and, and Brock who've gone before us that we're going to have their examples to work from as the, as these occur to more organizations. Yeah. Yes. So Jeremy, what's next for you? What's what's in your inbox? <laughs> so better better be finishing V4. Um, so by the time this this airs, I'll I'll be starting a new position. So I'll be meeting new coworkers, coming up to speed as fast as possible with the existing architecture. Right. Um, I, I think m- mostly on the open source front. I think it's mostly Martin, um, and we'll see from there. I have some smaller projects that are still going strong, but they don't. They don't require a lot of attention. So I think it's mostly Martin for me. Very good. All Martin all the time. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, thanks for spending this hour with us. It's always good to talk to you, Jeremy. And thanks for all the great work you do. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for letting us come on and talk, talk about Martin. Yeah. And we'll speak to you next time, dear listener, on .NET Rocks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.